All right, well, um, obviously this is a great week. Uh, after three months of online church and social separation and some significant health um, challenges, we should say, in the congregation, and even amidst the ongoing financial difficulty for a lot of people, um, we get to worship again together, okay? So, like, this is great. Um, and our reopen service obviously got me thinking again about what it even means to be the church, all right? From, from the first Sunday that we stopped gathering back in, what, March, first week in the March, right? Um, until today, what exactly is it that we've missed out on by not being together as the body of Christ? Now, of course, and we kept saying this, we never stopped being the church, even as we didn't physically meet together. Um, and in a few minutes, I'm actually going to share some of the cool things that God has been up to through this, uh, through this family, even while we've been apart. But there's still something special, right? And I would argue crucial, even, about being together as often as we can, as God's family. Um, so this week, I turned to one of the classic books on this question or this topic. It's called Life Together by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. If you guys haven't checked that one out, it's short, very readable, and just super good. I, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's worth everybody's time. I've read it a few times before, but what struck me this time as I looked at it was um, it, it hit me in a new way because one of the main themes early in the book is that Christian community is a gift, but it's not a given, okay? And he lays this out really clearly. There are many times in life and many areas in the world today that gathering as Christians like this isn't possible. So, of course, Bonhoeffer knew this very well. He was a pastor in Nazi Germany and an outspoken critic of the Nazi government. And he was a leader in the underground church, and he was even a member of what was called the resistance at the time. And when he wrote this short book, he was actually serving as a professor of an underground seminary that would very soon be, be discovered by the Gestapo and disbanded, and they wouldn't be able to be together again. So this is sort of his word to his people in a moment when they could meet together, knowing that that could be taken away at any second. And this is what he wrote. It's by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word in sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands stand alone. We could add those sheltering at place during pandemics, right? But it is these people that know that visible fellowship is a blessing. It's a gift because the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Now, I had read that before, but only now do I know what he means, right? I mean, I missed meeting with you guys. Like, I, I kept telling people, I'm thankful for websites and Vimeo and Zoom and all these things that we had to figure out on the fly. But um, to be honest, preaching into an iPhone is not exactly what I signed up for when I became a pastor. That wasn't my heart's greatest desire. Online is all good in emergencies and, and extreme situations. But it, Christians in particular, and in a unique way, miss something crucial when we can't do life together. This is part of our calling. So the question I want us to ask today for a few minutes is, why? Like, what is it about being together together that's such a boom and such an encouragement to 
Christians. We know intuitively there's something important, but what is it exactly? What about, as Bonhoeffer says, the physical presence of Christians gives such joy and strength? Um, To begin to unpack this, I want us to look at a classic passage that describes the early church, early in the book of Acts. It's from Acts 2, so you can follow along. Um, Do we have the lyrics or no? Maybe not. I'll just read it. Um, Listen along to Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. So they, the, the growing early church in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Okay, so verse 42 kind of stands as a banner over this passage, and actually as a banner over a lot of the book of Acts and a lot of the early church. And what it describes is four markers of the life of the church, four activities or identities that define life together. This is what Christians do when they're together. They devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is what the church does. All right, the body of Christ, the bride of Jesus, the family of God. When we're together, what we do that actually unites us in ways that run deeper than any of our differences are a devotion to these four things. One way to think about these is they're kind of like the roots of the family tree. Have you ever noticed that when they're starting a new church, what verb do they use to start that church? What do they do? They plant a church, right? Have you ever thought about why we talk about it that way? I mean, we don't launch a church like it's a new business venture, and we don't uh, found a church or establish a church or initiate a church. We plant it. There's something about a church that's like a tree, all right? Someone's got to plant it. Someone waters it. Someone tends it. But God's the one who makes it grow. And so I want to take this image and say, if the church is like a tree, these four behaviors, they're like the tap roots that drive deep into the ground. They're the avenues that the church uses to draw life and nutrients from God's good earth. Um, but the beautiful thing is that these things, they're not just for us, okay? They're not just um, to make us different or give us some sort of different identity from the world. They will do that. They'll make us different. But the point is not to be different but to be a gift to those around us. So a tree doesn't just have roots. It's got branches that provide shade for those, whether they're connected to it or not. It's got fruit that provides nutrients and life, whether they're connected to the tree or not. A good tree is good for everybody around it, not just for the tree. So here's what we're going to do for our time. I want us to look at these four roots of our life together. And as we go, I'm going to point out some of the fruits that God uses to be a blessing to the world around us, all right? So first thing we read as the church, um, in the, the early church in Jerusalem, the first thing is devoted to, it says, is to the apostles' teaching. Now the apostles, of course, were the men who uh, witnessed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who were commissioned by Jesus personally to bring the message of the gospel to the world. 
They were the authors of the New Testament. So when it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, what they mean is they were devoted to the contents of the authoritative, perfect, life-giving word of God. They were devoted to the Bible. Okay, they were a New Testament kind of people. Um, the deep root that we see is a commitment to God's life-giving word. Uh, it's been said, followers of Jesus are people of the book. I don't know if you've heard that phrase or not. We're people of the book. Congratulations, you're a person of the book if you trust in Jesus. But we're not just people who like know data from a book. And we're not just people who understand things about a book. We're, you could say, connoisseurs of the tastes and the delights that God pours out through this book. Being devoted to the apostles' teaching, it's less like dr the drudgery of studying for an exam in seminary, although there's a place for that, and I've been there, okay? And it's more like sharing an incredibly good meal with great friends. So I've eaten at exactly one Michelin star rated restaurant in my life, and it was when I lived in Chicago, and it was not on my dime, okay? But uh, a, a boss, a friend took us out, and we sat around this incredible meal, okay? And as we did this, what I realized, like a really, really good meal sort of elevates the whole experience that you have with the friends. Instead of the normal banter, you know, how bad are the bears gonna be this year? It was like, have you tried this? Like, you've got to enjoy this like I'm enjoying it. Have you touched, have you tried the cauliflower yet? Because up until this point, I hated cauliflower and now it's my single favorite food in the world because I just ate that. I had a transformative experience with cauliflower and I want you to have that experience too, right? That's the kind of relationship and the kind of talk that you have around a meal. When we enjoy the gifts that come pouring out of God's word, it's like sharing a meal with our family, a great meal. Um, we become connoisseurs, we become better tasters and seers of the goodness that God has given us in his word. It even says in verse 43, awe came upon every soul as they devoted themselves to these things. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. One of the fruits of a church with roots devoted to God's word is awe. We stand back and just say, have you tasted this? And it's a heightened awareness, a growing sense of the ways that God's at work among us. They saw signs and wonders. God's moving here. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Are you anticipating more of it? Do you taste that? Bonhoeffer knew this power of a shared devotion to God's word. In Life Together, he wrote this, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again. Because when he becomes uncertain and discouraged by himself, he cannot help himself. Right? He needs his brother as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. And then here's the great line. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother and sister. Isn't that true? His own heart is uncertain, but his brother's is sure. Christians do life together when we're devoted, when we sink our roots deeply into the life-giving word of God and remind each other and tell each other the truth. Because it's hard to believe on its own. It's easier to believe together. The second thing they devoted themselves to is called, they said, the fellowship. 
All right. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That's an interesting phrase. The word is koinonia. It's kind of an important word in the New Testament. It means fellowship, but it also means sharing or participation. Okay. It's a rich word. Um, and what it gets at is the shared identity that we all have together in Jesus. So what makes us a family is not actually our similarities um, on the surface. It's not our politics. It's not our race. It's not um, how we intuitively responded to COVID. It is not um, our socioeconomic status or our jobs. What makes us a family is this deep identity that we all look to Jesus and say, I'm a sinner, but he loves me and he saved me. And that deep identity it can, can bridge any chasm that we think makes us different. Um, we're one body in Christ, and being devoted to that reality, to the fellowship, the shared identity of grace, lives itself out by being devoted to one another. So after all, a body that's integrally connected can't help but help itself when part of it's injured, right? So um, this is David Dorsfault, who's sitting back there, but I've been on these long, epic trail runs in the mountains lately, like, you know, 15, 17 miles out there, and um, they're gorgeous. But uh, every once in a while as I'm going along, I'll get these weird kinks and like aches and like, oh, my left ankle hurts. And what I've noticed is that my body compensates for itself unconsciously. Right? So if my left ankle starts to hurt, my, my, my body unconsciously changes my gait, changes my stride. My right leg takes more of the weight because a body that's integrally connected will automatically care for the weaker part of itself, the injured part of itself, the suffering part of itself. And it's in this spirit that the author of Acts goes on to tell us about the common life of the church. Listen to this, verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this verse makes some people nervous, right? Doesn't this sound like the early church was just a bunch of pinko commies, like socialists who, you know, like redistributed wealth or whatever? Um, that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that they're just looking out for one another, right? If one of them is damaged or injured, then another one steps in and carries the load. If someone has been hit particularly hard by an economic downturn, someone who wasn't as affected as much pitches in. They care for each other's needs like a body cares for itself. Their behavior towards one another is a fruit of their devotion to the fact that they both share the same grace and life and hope in Christ. So, one of the questions that I've been asking over the past few months is not only what are the unique challenges of this COVID moment, and there are many of them, but also what are the unique opportunities? And sometimes the opportunities are harder to see for whatever reason. They kind of stay hidden longer. They take some discernment, some patience, some prayer to see. But one opportunity that just came rushing at us as a church right out of the gate was a chance to live out exactly this kind of devotion to one another's needs. So within a week of the, the, the shutdown, um, we established a new care team. It's led by Gordon Duncan to check in with at-risk people in our congregation to help with food and meds and deliveries and other practical acts of care. 
And as we started to wrap our minds around the health implications, I think we all started to see the economic implications of, coming, of this coming right behind it. In our country, in our valley, in our church, there's, there's going to be hurting people, right? There are right now, and there will be for months to come. And that's when one of the most amazing things happened. Someone from out of state um, who lives in a wealthy area and didn't see any significant need out their front door called me up and said, hey, how's the Roaring Fork Valley doing? How's your church doing? And I said, well, yeah, there's going to be hurting people down the line. And uh, they said, well, how can we help? And I said, well, we want to start a benevolence fund so that we have resources to be able to practically care for the needs of the people in our congregation and beyond. And he said, great, I'm in for the seed money, turn it into a matching gift, let's get this thing going. So other people in our congregation jumped in, and as of today, this is the first time I've announced it publicly, but we already have 10 grand in a fund that um, is, is available to help with the practical needs and care of our family, right? We'd love to see that start at 15,000, initially grow the fund to 15,000. So if that's something you're interested in contributing to, um, every dollar you give for the first 2,500 bucks or whatever will be matched and will be at 15 grand and will be ready to roll. And um, this is a way, this is not something you have to kill yourself over, right? I mean, this isn't like, don't go sell your possessions and your property, even though that's what they did in the Bible, apparently. But you don't have to do that. 50 bucks turns into 100. 200 turns into 400. I think if we're all in this together, we can get there pretty quick. The early church committed themselves to community on purpose. All right, it's, they called it the fellowship. And it's the kind of community you have to choose. You gotta opt in, you gotta be proactive. It doesn't happen on accident. It doesn't happen from hanging out and, you know, like it, it's, it's embodied. It's presence. It's available. It's the kind of friendship that takes things one level deeper in this conversation than we did in the last one. It's the kind of relationships that initiate generosity. I mean, I didn't even ask for that gift, and it just came to us because it's a mindset that says, if Jesus was entirely generous with me, if he didn't hold back a single good gift when he poured out his gospel from heaven, then that actually frees me to be generous to those around me. It unlocks this thing in my heart that allows me to be generous in ways that I wasn't before, to participate, to share, to fellowship. The last two roots of our shared life together we're going to take together. They'll be very short, just for the sake of time. Uh, so we read in 42, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. This is a nod to the hospitality of their shared life together, but specifically it's a reference to the bread and the wine of the sacrament that Jesus left with his church. And it's a, it's a nod to the prayers of the gathered and the worship church. And let me just say, it's about time that we get to do communion together again, okay? This is probably the thing I've, I've missed the most. Um, I chose not to do the online communion thing, and just so you know, not because I think it's like fundamentally wrong or something. A lot of my pastor buddies uh, have been doing it, and, and that's fine. But um, the reason I chose not to do it is because I think there is something so central to the Lord's table about the embodied presence of Christ among us. I think that's what it represents in a deep way. Paul says when you take this meal, you're to discern the body. 
all right, in 1 Corinthians 11. It's a double reference. He's saying discern the body of Christ represented in this bread, but discern the body of Christ represented in one another, right? In other words, as you take this meal, see each other. It's not just a thing between you and God. It's a thing between you and God's body, his family, his church. Pray for each other. This is a meal that connects us up and connects us out. So even though we're going to share communion together from these hilarious little prepackaged sterilized cups, and we'll get through it, look past all that and see what this meal represents, okay? This is our shared identity in the blood of Jesus. This is his, his body and blood crushed for our iniquities, but raised for our triumph and our eternal life and our joy and our hope. It's a shared meal that not only nourishes our faith today, but points us as a family towards heaven together. As we sink our roots deeper and deeper into the nutrient-rich soil of God's word, the life-giving relationships of Christian community, the mysterious and beautiful gift of the sacraments, and the vibrant, honest, scripture-soaked prayer life of God's people, here's what happens next. And we'll close with this. God turns our worship into witness. All right, did you notice the last verse in our passage? It's pretty amazing. Verse 47, praising God, that's the worship of the church, and having favor with all the people, that's the reputation of God's church. Okay, in other words, the world out there is saying, we might not agree with what you believe. In fact, that bit about the resurrection is particularly crazy. But, um, and also, some of your moral guidelines seem pretty outdated, if I'm honest. But, man, we're glad you're here. Okay, we might not agree with you, but we're glad that the church is here. Grace Church is good for the Roaring Fork Valley, right? They have a, a, a favor with all the people. They run good businesses. They're connectors and gatherers. They bring life where they go. They're generous. Their fruit as a community is a blessing to more than just themselves. The branches of their tree spread wide. They provide shade. They provide fruit for those that aren't even connected to them. They're good for our place. They had favor with all the people. And then the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, right? God grows his church. He grows his people. That's the reason for our life together, why we need to be together together. It's to experience the goodness of Jesus and then to share that goodness of Jesus with others. Worshiping a compelling God becomes a compelling witness to those around us. It's good to be back with you guys. Let me pray for us, and then we'll continue to worship our wonderful God together. Together. Jesus, thank you um, for the chance to open up your word again with the church family. Um, thank you for how you sustained us and how you are still sustaining us. There's people that can't be with us physically just yet, but Jesus, we pray that um, as we do gather and as, uh, as we do gather as your people, these would be the things that define us, your word, your community, this meal of grace, and the prayers that we uh, pour out, knowing that you hear us and knowing that you advocate for us to the Father in heaven. God, thank you for the chance to gather together, do life together, worship you together. I pray that we would also be a witness together to your name. We ask these things in your name. Amen.